Coming up today on the show, we've had at least 24 hours to process the debacle that was the Seahawks' 37-3 loss in Baltimore yesterday. Where is this team at? I'm going to approach it from a little different angle today, and I'm going to ask three key questions that point out what a crossroads this team is and some answers that we're going to need over the next couple of weeks. Three big questions about where this team is today on Seahawks Forever. Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. I want to get right to this today, so let's get the business out of the way, shall we? Hit that like button, subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's where the action really happens. But if you prefer audio podcasts, also subscribe there wherever you listen to podcasts. And if your uh, preference is Spotify and you want to get rid of those pesky ads, uh, you can do so for 99 cents a month and join in on the subscriber base there and then you will get exclusive ad-free episodes. Uh, also, if you just really like what I do here and you want to support the channel and me, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com or a beer, whichever way you want to look at it. That link is in the description. Uh, we're going to keep this one simple today. And, and I do that in honor of something that I'm going to be doing tonight. And I know that our friend of the show and uh, fantastic Seahawks beat writer Bob Kondota will also be doing it tonight. Uh, Kiss is playing at Climate Pledge Arena tonight in Seattle. I'm going to take myself to the show and kind of do a full circle thing. My first concert ever when I was 13 years old in that same building was Kiss in their prime, in their heyday. And even though they are past their prime, going to go enjoy them one last time before they hang up the 8-inch platform boots Uh on New Year's Eve, I think is their last show. And I know Bob Kendota will be there as well. So uh, and it, it, the the word KISS has become an acronym also. It's used a lot in coaching circles. It stands for Keep It Simple Stupid. And I think that's where we're at with the Seahawks right now. So I'm going to try to keep today's show simple. And rather than do my five takeaways, and it's the reason I didn't do the, the reaction show yesterday, in part because I had processed a lot of that during the live stream with Dana on the PSF app. Uh, as we live stream the entire game, um, needed to sit with it for 24 hours. And I want to pose three key questions to you. And my goal today isn't to come up with the answers. But the point I'm attempting to make is that we're going to get these answers over the next couple of weeks. Heading into the season, and even as, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, a great deal of the conversation surrounding this team especially after getting off to a good start. Remember, they they started last year, what, two and three, two and four? Uh, so, you know, the sky might be falling after getting rolled in Baltimore. There's still five and three tied for first place in the NFC West. Things could certainly be worse, right? But the the conversation, for the most part, the narrative was, this young roster needs to gel, needs to come together and put themselves in a position if they fancy themselves a playoff team. Before that gauntlet, when the schedule hits in late November, where you get the 49ers, Cowboys, Eagles, and 49ers again within four weeks. I submit to you that that has changed. And the point of the show today is we're going to find out about this team over the next two weeks. Because now you face a Washington Commanders team that comes to Lumen Field, and they've been tough to judge. They've been unpredictable. They've played well at times. They're coming off a win. 
Uh, their young quarterback, Sam Howell, they believe in him. They, they believe him to be the franchise guy moving forward. He has played well. He's coming off a good performance this week, but he's a young quarterback. And then, of course, at the trade deadline, we saw Washington sell off some key pieces on defense, uh, trading away both Montez Sweat and Chase Young. And so that would be a game based on the evidence that we had up until Sunday that you would think that the Seahawks have a good chance to win. And I haven't checked the line. I'm not a betting guy, but they're most likely favored in that game. And then they play at an LA Rams team the next week down there that is decimated by injuries. That is going to look a lot different than the team that rolled them in the second half of the opener here and beat them. Uh, in fact, just today, Sean McVay said uh, Matt Stafford's going to be out another week, but that he may come back in time for the Seattle game specifically. And then he was noncommittal about who would play if it wasn't him, whether that would be Brett Ripien again, who has not performed well, or I think their third quarterback is Stetson Bennett down there, isn't he? They tried to reacquire John Wofford uh, from the Bucs, but then the Bucs elevated him to keep him. And that was Wofford. Is it Wofford or Wolford? Anyway, uh, the the one-time backup who played really well when Jared Goff got hurt his last year there. Uh, in fact, played well against the Seahawks before he went out with a concussion, if you remember that. Um, had familiarity in the system, uh, but it was actually his choice. He thought the opportunity long-term might be better in Tampa. And so these are, I, I hesitate to use this word, but winnable games. And, and I'm going to bridge the crux of today's show by saying this. If you cringe at the word winnable because of what you saw yesterday, then just keep in mind, I say this all the time, the NFL is a week-to-week league. What we see from one team one week is not necessarily what what we can expect to see the next week. Now, the good teams, the elite teams, do it week in and week out. But just think about this. Everyone now is talking about how the Ravens might be the best team in the AFC. Might be a Super Bowl team if Lamar Jackson stays healthy. That they're that complete on both sides of the ball. That this new offense fits Jackson even better than the old one. And that they're a very, very dangerous team. Yet, they have two losses. And they have two losses to inferior teams. It happens. So keep that in mind a little bit, right? The Seahawks could turn it around in these next couple of weeks, beat two opponents that that you can argue they should beat based on what we saw the first seven weeks and be seven and three going into that Thanksgiving game against the 49ers. How would you feel then? But that's hard. I, I get it. It's hard to do coming off what we saw yesterday where they just looked overmatched. In some ways, it was similar to that Rams game because, you know, first quarter ended 0-0. And as Dana and I talked about on the live stream, kind of was the style of game we thought it was going to have to be if the Seahawks had a chance to win. Ugly, grind them out. But the defense was slowing down the Ravens and forcing punts. And the offense made some plays, but just couldn't, couldn't make third downs again. And so there was still some hope at the end of the first quarter that, hey, they can hang around, maybe have a shot at this thing in the second half. And then it then it got away from them. It got away from them earlier than it did in the Rams game, but the end of the game felt 
similar. Fourth quarter certainly did. Like they just couldn't compete. And they were worn out by then. You know, two to one time possession. The Ravens, of course, ran for 300 yards, almost 300 yards. Um, and so that recency bias, right? It feels like, how can this team win another game? <laughs> so let's get into these. These are the three key questions I've been bouncing around in my head. And, and normally after these games, I try to make some determinations. I don't. I won't. I'm putting these questions out there. I want to know what you think in the comments. Answer these questions. But my, my initiative here is, or my intention here, is that these questions need to be answered over the next two weeks to find out where this team is and if they're a legitimate wildcard playoff contender. Um, and I know, I know, for those of you optimists out there, I said wildcard contender. They're tied for the division lead. Anything can happen. Number one, the biggest question I think that's on everyone's mind. Well, maybe number three is. But number one is, where's the run defense? What happened to the run defense? These stats um, are courtesy of our friend Corbin Smith today. Posted these on Twitter. In the last three games, the Seahawks are giving it. Well, let me do this the other way around. Nope. Last three games. They're giving up 193 yards per game. And they've given up five touchdowns on the ground during that time as well. They've been the three worst rushing performances by this defense all season, and they've gotten progressively worse each week. Capped by uh, almost 300 yards rushing, 297, I think, or 298 yesterday. And if the Ravens hadn't taken that knee at the three at the end of the game, they might have been able to punch it in and get 300. Uh, that three games lines up with the loss of Uchenna Nwosu. Now, to think that an edge player can have that much of an impact on the run defense might be a stretch because he's only responsible for setting his edge. We knew the drop-off from him to Daryl Taylor, who's never been known as a good run defender, was going to be noticeable, but we thought maybe Derek Hall would pick up some of that slack and maybe Frank Clark it's, I don't think it's a coincidence, but I also don't think it's insurmountable. Also, uh, this stat provided by Corbin. Weeks one through six, that's 24 quarters. The Seahawks allowed eight plays of 10 yards or more on the ground. In the last 12 quarters, half of that same sample size, they have allowed 12 they have dropped after rising up. You know, they started poorly uh, on total defense, but they, they they were stopping the run early on. Uh, they have dropped all the way to 21st in the league now uh, in yards per game. They're allowing 122. They had 14 missed tackles yesterday, a week after missing only one tackle, according to PFF, against Cleveland. Was Uchenna Nuosu that impactful against the run? Or is it a number of things? Is it trying to incorporate two new players in Frank Clark and Leonard Williams in back-to-back -back weeks? It's going to take those guys time to get acclimated. And it's going to take the players playing next to them time to get used to playing with them, right? Like you can make the argument that just when they were getting things dialed in and that run defense looked consistently stout, um, that then in three straight weeks, they've 
subtracted Nwosu and added Clark and Williams. They need to get that back together. If that defense can't stop the run and force teams into uh, you know longer down and distance, more obvious passing situations, regardless of what the offense is doing, and we're certainly going to get to that in a second, uh, it's going to be a tough, tough road, especially as you get a, get into you know that stretch, right? Because we know how good the 49ers, Eagles, and Cowboys can run the football. So that needs, that needs to be answered. It needs to be fixed. It seems like listening to Pete, listening to the players talk, that it's fixable, that it's assignment-based. Maybe teams have adjusted to what they're seeing on tape from the Seahawks and altered their approach and their blocking schemes and how they call the game on, on the ground. Now it's up to the Seahawks to adjust again. Need to see that get better or none of this other stuff's going to matter. The number two key question on my mind right now is who is this offense? What's their identity? And you can make all the excuses in the world about the offensive line being banged up and injured. A lot of other teams have dealt with that too, including the Ravens. Ronnie Staley's been banged up. They were missing another one of their starters yesterday, and yet they still steamrolled us. Are some of those guys not as good as we thought? Is Evan Brown maybe not as big of an upgrade over Austin Blythe as we thought and hoped he would be? Is Damian Lewis, who has been a little bit of a lightning rod. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, in his time here, is he not performing up to standards? He's been banged up. Is he not 100% healthy? Is Anthony Bradford, even as a rookie, and he's had some struggles in pass protection, but he missed this game with an ankle injury, so they got Phil Haynes back. Is Anthony Bradford that much better than Phil Haynes? Is Was that part of the impact? Uh, because even last week against Cleveland, even though I harped on them not calling enough designed runs, uh, they at least gained, you know, they only had, 15 designed run calls, but they gained a little over 100 yards with those. It was it was effective in spots, especially early in the game. And there was the 40-yarder by Kenneth Walker that led to a score on an early drive. Well, yesterday, 13 carries, 24 yards, and Kenneth Walker looked like the worst version of himself early in his rookie season when he's trying to bounce everything outside. Is that because the hole wasn't there or was it more in line with my preview show last week when I talked about um, how Kenneth Walker leads the NFL in number of times that he doesn't run into the intended hole. 26% of the time he doesn't run into the the hole that was uh, the run was designed for that leads the league by a good margin. His success rate at doing that is about middle of the pack. So you can argue that, you know, sometimes it works for him. We're going to get into Kenneth Walker, Zach Charbonnet in, in my last question. But this offense just can't, can't find a rhythm. And it's, obviously we're going to talk about the quarterback in a minute. But it's certainly more than that. Like one third down, one out of 12 yesterday. Is that what it was? They're just, they've been consistently bad on third down. 
and that that can't all just be the quarterback because he was pretty good last year. I think it, I think in that case it has more to do with they're not able to run the football. They're getting in third and longs. The other team can pin their ears back a little bit, especially a team like the Ravens that are dynamic and they come at you in a bunch of different ways with their pressure and they're good at disguising that. And the offensive line just isn't holding up well enough. But also, what's the deal with Shane Waldron? Has he regressed? Has the league kind of had enough information on him now to know how to attack him defensively? What frustrates me about what we're seeing from Shane Waldron is it just doesn't, you can, you can design the most exotic plays in the world. And, and Waldron has been getting a lot of praise lately from some really, really highly respected analysts. Robert Mays talked about how he loves watching play design from the Seahawks. Colt McCoy did a video last year, really cool, breaking down how Waldron schemes some players open. Here's what frustrates me. The Cincinnati game, I talked a lot about how you know, we lose that game because late when we had a couple opportunities in the red zone to win it, we couldn't get anything done because of the pressure. But yet they were leaving those tackles out on an island. And remember at that time, they, it was before they'd switched to Stone Forsyth at right tackle. So it was Jake Kern and it was Jake Kern on a bad ankle. And yet there was no adjustment there in that game going in, up against Hendrickson and Hubbard. They just ran a bunch of 11 personnel and, and, we had seen earlier in the season the 12 and 13 personnel with two and three tight ends was working really well and I thought was going to be a foundation of what they do because they have that great group. Parkinson, Disley, Fant. That is a group that now seems to be grossly underutilized, not just in the passing game. Because I think, I think when you go up against a team like the Ravens that are pressuring you like they are, then one of the things I would lean on as a coordinator is that short passing game to the tight ends has to be open in the middle of the field, especially if you're going heavy tight end usage. But also that gives you opportunities to help out your tackles. And so against Cincinnati, they, to a fault, they trusted their offensive line, never adjusted, didn't go back to it in the second half either, just stuck with their game plan. Then they come out the next week against Arizona and run 70%, almost 70% 12 and 13 personnel. Boom, it's back. And then they come out the next week and run, it's, it was almost inverse, where it was almost 70% 11 personnel, three wide receivers. And it worked, they won, but there still wasn't the consistency we're seeing out of the offense. And the third down percentage wasn't all that much better. It was just covered up a little bit by the fact that they win. So they come out this week then against a team that was leading the NFL in sacks. And yet we saw, haven't seen the breakdown of the percentages, but, but just watching it in the naked eye, A, not enough 12 and 13 personnel. B, they didn't adjust to it and add that into the mix in the second half when they're getting killed. And C, they didn't use those tight ends in the passing game. I think Parkinson had one catch. There was a play early on where Geno took a sack where it looked like Will Disley was the intended target. Noah Fant's invisible. He's the most physically talented tight end in that group. One of the most physically talented in the league, you can argue. A guy that can get vertical, that can stretch the field, and they're just not using him that way. It's just a waste. 
you know, they're, they're paying Will Disley. What's his cap hit this year? Nine? To what? Be a situational blocker a third of the game? Not be involved in the passing game? You know, we went into this season and, and we just looked at the collection of talent. Wide receiver room, DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, Jackson Smith and Jigba, D. Eskridge, now Jake Bobo. That's as good a five as you're going to find. You looked at the young collection of running backs. Kenny McIntosh got hurt, but Ken Walker, after what he did as a rookie, Zach Charbonnet. You look at those tight ends, talked about them. The collection of talent. How do you coordinate that? They're, they're, they're an, the offensive coordinator is aptly titled. How do you coordinate it? How do you mix it together? And how do you react and adjust and adapt during a game? To me, what I'm starting to think about Shane Waldron is he's great on the whiteboard. He can design a play, but he doesn't have that feel during the game. Part of being a coordinator isn't what you do Wednesday through Saturday. It's what you do on damn Sunday. My quarterback's getting killed right now. We're, our protection is struggling. So let me help him. Let's get the ball out quicker. Get the ball to the tight ends. I, I don't understand why for 10 plus years, the Seahawks have stunk at wide receiver screens that we watch other teams perform really well. I'm not talking about the, the kind of screen that won the game against Cleveland where you just throw it out to JSN, little bubble screens or whatever. I'm talking about play action, delay, you leak the running back out, you get a couple offensive linemen out in front of them, you let some defensive linemen come, it's a great call on long down and distance or when you're expecting pressure, when you get blitz, for whatever reason, whether it's play design or execution, they just, I don't know, maybe it's a Pete thing. I don't know. They just don't even attempt it. So I don't know. I don't know about the coordinator. And they need to figure that out. They need to find some consistency. You know, you, you go back and you look at, because it's always easy to just judge the quarterback. Look at Geno's game logs from this year. You can find him on ESPN. Go to his player page, click game logs. It shows you game by game. And for those of you who think he's playing terrible, just look at some of those games. You go, it's not bad. It's pretty good. But if you want me to talk about Geno, here we go. Third key question. Always compete? With a question mark? Um... Have you read Pete Carroll's book? If you haven't, you should. It'll help you understand the guy. But also, we've seen examples over his tenure here in Seattle of where he's been a little contradictory, maybe even hypocritical. We certainly saw it during some of the rush years where guys seem to just have carte blanche and seem to have a hold on their position even when there was an interesting or viable backup that that might serve the team better to play. We need to find that out with some guys. And that's where I have some questions. I'm going to finish with the quarterback. What about running back? I talked about the issues earlier, and I'm seeing that, that you know, Ken Walker's first instinct is to bounce and dance. I'm not so sure that Zach Charbonnet wouldn't be better suited to where this offense is right now early in games with Walker being the change of pace. 
you know, his rookie year, he was doing that to a fault. I just felt like he was trying to bounce everything outside. I wasn't alone. And yeah, it creates some highlight level Barry Sanders type plays, but sometimes <laughs> it, uh, it's, it's to the offense's detriment. And then second half of his, his freshman campaign, his rookie year, it became an emphasis where they were trying to get him to go more north and south. And we saw the effect. He became a much more effective running back consistently. That's more Charbonnet's style. I wonder if instead of, you know, leaning on Walker early and then going to Charbonnet later, that he hasn't earned an opportunity to get a look earlier in games. Maybe those two roles should be flip-flopped a little bit. Um, On defense, you know, we saw when it comes to that run defense is... You know, who's the better run defender on that edge? Is it Derek Hall? Is it Frank Clark? Figure that out. Give those guys a chance to play. Now, a couple of injury updates, by the way. Uh, Derek Hall banged up his shoulder, looked pretty bad when he left yesterday. It's the same shoulder he had issues with earlier this season. Carroll didn't really have any answers today, but he did say he felt better today. So it, I don't know. It doesn't sound like the kind of thing that, might need surgery, might be serious, might land him on injury reserve, but um, we've been disappointed in other areas this year with Carol being a little optimistic about an injury and then it turns out to be, you know, much worse. Um, also, sounds like, well, Drake Thomas was placed on injury reserve. He's probably going to miss the year uh, with a knee. I haven't heard specifically if, if it's an ACL or an MCL. That's a shame. You know, if, if you saw my episode when he was acquired, I really like his future, a good young inside linebacker. Uh, Devin Bush was a healthy scratch though before yesterday's game. So at least they, you know, maybe it's a good thing they didn't trade him at the trade deadline. They can lean on him a little bit. So they've got some depth there. Uh, DJ Dallas was also banged up in that game. Shoulder. He's sore today. Don't know his status for this week, but Kenny McIntosh will be, will this be his second or third full week of practice? He's fully healthy again, so he can be activated off the pup. And the team, when they placed Thomas on injury reserve, they they activated Austin Fielu. The defensive lineman, former Oregon Duck, was all XFL for the Seattle Dragons yesterday. Really interesting guy, 6'4", 305, long, can play over the nose, uh, can also play that three technique. He was activated off the pup list today, so that defensive line just gets deeper. Um, So fitting those guys in, you know. Miles Adams was a healthy scratch this week. Has he taken a step back? Has he not? progressed in the way that we thought he would. I, I mean, I need to see that mantra of competition put into action. And maybe you have to make some hard decisions sometimes. And everybody wants to talk about the quarterback this week. And for good reason. Gino was bad yesterday. Again, we've seen him, you know, he threw for 330 against the Bengals, but he had those plays that he left on the field that were wide open for us all to see that would have been easy touchdowns that he missed for some reason. Uh, He was pretty solid for the most part against Cleveland, but he had the two turnovers, right? He only had one interception in his first five games. Now he has six in his last four. Is that what it is? Uh, One, two, three, four, five, six. Six in his last four. After one in his first four. That's the math. Uh, He's also lost a couple of fumbles. Can't happen. Can't happen anymore. And the one, you know, Pete was asked about the one where he's trying to hit Tyler. It was just just a bad throw. Overthrew it. 
Um, some of the other picks he's thrown the last four weeks, you can make the excuse. There was the one that DK stopped running his route. There was one that they thought Bobo could have helped him out a little bit. But can't have that. Can't have those turnovers. Um, Gino last year finished sixth in the NFL in passer rating. Even with all the talk about how he wasn't as good in the last five or six games as he was in the first 10, finished the season with a 100.9 rating. That's sixth in the NFL over a 17-game sample size. That's not a fluke. But as many of you naysayers and non-Geno believers or Geno detractors, I guess, have been telling me all through the offseason, like you could see the future, knew it was going to happen, the league was going to figure him out and know how to defend him. This year so far, he is 20th in the NFL with an 86.4 passer rating. He is yet um, uh, coming off of a 49.3 rating performance against Baltimore. But again, go look at his game logs, okay? If you come at me with, Gino has stunk all year. I told you he was going to stink. He's a backup only. It was a flash in the pan last year. He's been terrible all year. You excuse yourself from the debate because it's just not, it's not true. Look at the game logs. 116.3 rating against Detroit. 113 rating against Arizona. 95.8 against the Giants. Then 87.3, The Cincinnati game, he was sub-70. And then he was 49.3 yesterday. Not good enough. I said during the live stream with about eight minutes left, game's out of hand. I said to Dana, you know, why not go to Drew here? Because you certainly, if you're still, if you're still committed to Geno as being the guy, it's going to take a lot more than one or two bad games for Pete to switch quarterbacks. We know that. But why risk him to injury? And then shortly after that, Thomas goes down, Hall goes down, DJ Dallas gets hurt. Like, if that was a college game, they would have pulled the starter. But Dana made made a point that, you know, maybe you send the wrong message to the locker room. Maybe. I don't know. Pete knows that better than anybody. You know, that it seems like that locker room is really together. Seems like they believe in Gino. They like Drew too. I don't think there's a there's a you know a fracture there at all. But the idea that the the unknown guy might be kind of interesting, might be able to do something better, is something that gets a lot of coaches into into trouble. It's common. I get it because you don't like what you're seeing. But man, just assuming that it's going to be better is a slippery slope. You know, Drew didn't grab hold of that starting spot in Denver for a couple of reasons. One, they changed regimes over and over again, but he didn't play well. It's very, very similar, his performance there, to what we've seen from Gino the last couple of weeks, where, you know, too many turnovers, too many chances taken. Uh but it certainly looked like he was more comfortable and confident this preseason. I believe in the arm talent. Dude can spin it. And I do think there's an opportunity. I I think he could potentially be a good starter in this league, but I don't want to find out right now because this is a, this is a team on a playoff 
arc, potentially. If they were three and five right now, maybe a different story because then maybe you're looking for a spark. But if you make that move now and Drew plays poorly, these next couple of weeks, do you lose the team? You may lose the season and then it causes a lot of distractions. So I'm not ready to say it's time to pull that trigger yet, but I will say this. If you think I'm sitting here being a Geno apologist, I've been as supportive of him since the beginning of last year as anyone. But I try to be objective. At the end of the day, I want my team to win and I want my coaches to also have that outlook. Pete was very protective of Geno in the post game. And I hope that doesn't mean that he has that job locked up and set in stone no matter how he performs. Because at a certain point, if his performance doesn't turn around, and if he doesn't win a couple of games in the next six weeks against good defenses, then not only does the conversation of what to do in the offseason, which I touched on last week, start to gain steam, because I believe that no matter how well Geno plays the rest of the year, this team needs to identify a young quarterback moving forward. They need to acquire him next year. Uh, not only that, but then I think the conversation about what to do now has gains some steam and gains some validity. If he goes out and plays the next two weeks, like he did Sunday, then the excuses of offensive line not performing well enough, not in sync, not in rhythm. The good quarterbacks overcome some of that. Waldron didn't do him any favors. Another thing I hadn't mentioned that drives me crazy is we've seen times this year where Waldron will move Geno around on little half rollouts, and he's pretty good at it. He didn't do that once yesterday. I don't, uh, I don't want to harp on that for too long. I just don't understand it. I'm not willing to give up on Gino or make a, a, a harsh judgment about his job status yet because I haven't seen enough from this offense to think that Drew would be set up for success any better than Gino. Okay? So that's where I'm at on that. Those are my three key questions. What do you think about him? Do you have any other questions you would add to it? I think the next two weeks are going to tell us a lot. They're going to tell us more maybe than those four games in November and December will tell us. If they can get some things together and find themselves a little bit heading into that stretch, we'll probably think a lot differently about this team. But if things don't go well the next two weeks, this season could go off the rails in a hurry. So stay tuned to Seahawks Forever for all the in-depth analysis and reaction and emotion as objective as I try to be. Uh, Hit that like button, subscribe to the channel, please. And uh, follow me on Twitter, at Seahawks Forever. If you uh, happen to see this in the next two hours after I post it and you're going to the Kiss Show tonight, let me know. Let's grab a beer together um, before we rock and roll all night and party every day, right? Forever and always, go Hawks. I'm Dan. Thanks for watching.